0: ira 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 die. ira ira die, ira die, die. Ei, dai, I d I dai, I die, I die, I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I Shalom,
1: shalom, holy friends, great to see you, great to see you all here. Eric and Lauren and Matthew and Gina, Steve and Vicky and Yehuda. Thank you for all those who are um, right on time here. So let's start with a little poll here based on our debor- debate number 14, Divine Torah versus Biblical Criticism. Where does Torah come from? Uh, I'll give you a clue. There's no clear answer here. So don't. <laughs> all from God from Sinai, God and humans from Sinai, God and humans over time, all humans over time.
2: So cast your vote over there. Give you a few seconds. Nobody can see what you're voting as always a reminder. Okay, Pam, let's see the results here.
1: Okay, 29% say all God from Sinai, 43% say God and humans from Sinai, 14% say God and humans over time, and 14% say all humans over time. Very interesting, very interesting. Okay, friends, so this is, uh, you know, like every one of these debates, it feels like this is the the question of all questions. Um, and of course, they're all important. But the question of where is the Torah from feels like an important one. So as usual, I'll share some reflections and some, some Jewish sources here, and then would love to hear your questions and insights as well. So to start by naming the problem, there's a lot of morally troubling ideas in the Torah. How could this be divine? How could this be divine? And so personally, I live with the commitments that the Torah is from God, and that I'm obligated to, go- to God to live by the mitzvot. For me, this is as much of a loving relationship with co- a covenant as an acceptance of obligation to abide by a distant law. While this is my framework, I have a respect for the academics who have demonstrated that the Torah was written by many authors throughout different eras. While I'm not a Bible scholar by any means, my general orientation is toward believing academics academic experts, where there's a general consensus, as there seems to be here. I find rabbinic maneuvers to prove that every word of the Torah is the word of God to be meaningful at times and perhaps silly at other times. For me, though, the tension between a covenantal relationship with Torah and an academic perspective on it is not an irreconcilable conflict. I understand the Torah to represent an evolving relationship with the divine, both within this world and beyond this world. Of course, I do not know, indeed none of us can know in an empirical sense what was said at Sinai, but I do relate to the Sinai experience as having been the beginning of a key aspect of the relationship between the Jewish people and God with everything good that emerged after that experience being somehow connected to that place and that time. In that sense, it doesn't totally matter to me when the description of that experience was written down
2: or by whom.
1: For me also, given my commitment to halakha, I view the ethical and the legal to be one. There cannot be a difference. Furthermore, it seems clear that we have the mandate to actualize the unity of these two concepts. And so the written Torah and the spoken Torah, the Chumash and the Talmud, the Halakha and the Ethical all merge together. Of course, there's some fidelity to a chain of connectivity, which means that sometimes, sometimes there needs sometimes to be patience in this merger. But everything must stem from that starting point and move forward in that trajectory. The rabbis of the Talmud explain that the Torah was not revealed in a perfect divine language, but in an imperfect human language so that it could be properly understood. Or putting it another way, the Torah is written in a way that could be understood by humanity. Here's what it says in Brachot and Ketubot. Debra Torah Bilshon Ben Adam, the Torah was written in the language of human beings. There is no divine language, at least not one we understand. Dogs understand dog language. I mean, I guess they understand some human language too, right? But humans understand human language. We don't understand divine language. Debra Torah Shon Ben Adam, the Torah was written in the language of human beings. This inevitably renders perfect interpretation or consistency impossible. This is not a hermeneutical problem unique to the Torah. Rather, we understand in modernity that our mystical insights and psychological depth can never adequately be captured in language. Human experience is more profound than human language. You'll tell me if you agree or disagree with that later. Human experience is more profound than human language. Even if the Pentateuch was written down over time, a position that the tradition itself embraces, at least to a degree, that this does not detract from its divine origin. Traditional commentators have offered many explanations for how the Torah was written. Rabbi Yochanan argued that the Torah was given scroll by scroll, while Raish Lakish argued that the Torah was, was originally given in its entirety. You can find that debate in the Babylonian Talmud, Gitin 60A to B. According to Rashi's interpretation, even for Resh Lakish, the entire Torah was not given all at once at Mount Sinai. Rather, Moshe wrote down each passage as it was told to him. And then the passages were compiled together, Megillah Rishis Nitzna. In the 13th century, the Ramban explained, when Moshe came down from the mountain, he wrote from the beginning of the Torah until the end of the story of the tabernacle. And the conclusion of the Torah, he wrote at the end of the 40th year. This is according to the one who says the Torah was given scroll by scroll, as we just shared. But according to the one who says it was given complete, the entire thing was written in the 40th year, right? which is to say there is a prolonged experience of writing down either that revelation continues or that revelation was at once, and then it was um, written down over time. While traditionally it's understood that God is the author, some traditional scholars believe that there still may have been more than one scribe. Ibn Ezra, at the end of his commentary on the Torah, argued that not every word was written by Moshe himself. Ah, what? Since Joshua wrote the last 12 verses of the Torah. Here's the Ibn Ezra. In my opinion, Joshua wrote from this verse on. For after Moshe ascended Harnevo, he for no longer he no longer wrote. Joshua wrote it by way of prophecy, as we see from the Lord showed him, the Lord said to him, and he buried him. So why is why does he have to argue this? Because Moshe dies. How could Moshe write? How could Moshe write the words of the Torah? after he has died, right? And so one opinion here, according to Ibn Ezra, which may seem radical to some, is that Joshua wrote those words. Moshe wasn't the sole one writing these words. Joshua did it. According to other commentators, Moshe wrote it with his own tears. He wrote with his own tears about his own death, um, uh, about his own death and what's going to come after through his prophecy. Rabbi Yosef Albo, the 15th century Spanish rabbi, explained, why was the entire Torah given in in written form? The law of God cannot be perfect so as to be adequate for all times, because the ever new details of human relations, their customs and their acts are too numerous to be embraced in a book. Therefore, Moshe was given only certain general principles by means of which the wise men in every generation may work out the details. So Yosef Albo explains that revelation itself needed to be incomplete because of the changes in, um, uh, in human society and human understanding. So there was room, there was principles given, and then more was fleshed out as, 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 uh, as human history evolves. Earlier, Rambam understood Rav Albo's point that the law of God cannot be perfect so as to be adequate for all times. For example, take something that For um, some, some, I've heard some reform scholars say, I don't believe the whole Torah was given by God. I believe the Ten Commandments was. I've heard many um, reform rabbis say that, uh, something like that. Okay, but even there, if it says do not kill, well, what does that mean? That's an interesting principle. Do not murder. Um, But what does do not murder mean? What does it mean about self-defense? What does it mean about warfare? Right? What does it mean about animals as opposed to humans? It doesn't say don't murder humans. It says don't murder. So h- how are we going to understand don't murder? And what about when indirect, right? There weren't guns in that day. Murder meant you directly with your body or with your weapons, stab someone, stab someone, or hit them with a rock. Well, now I shoot a gun and I don't physically touch them, right? I, the bullet does, not me, right? And that's actually, I mean, that seems absurd to some, but according to Grumma, direct action versus indirect, all I did was pull a trigger. The bullet actually hits someone, right? Or what about a drone, right? So warfare and murder becomes all the more complicated. So there's a, what might seem like a straightforward law or moral principle, do not murder, is actually a very complex principle. How are we going to understand don't murder in the first century is going to look very different to the 11th century or to the 21st century. Also, in the Code of Hammurabi, don't murder excluded slaves. Slaves weren't real human beings. And the Torah is going to include human beings right? Of course, every human being. And so it's very complicated throughout history, this idea of don't murder, don't murder who and how and when. So um, that's around this idea around principles. So clearly, there are biblical stories and laws which are morally troubling. Why is slave ownership permitted at all? Why do multiple chapters of the Torah deal in such specific detail with the building of a tabernacle that hasn't been in use in millennia? And that God obviously knew would only be temporary aside from preservation for a messianic era. And are we really to stone rebellious children? But Judaism is not only and not even primarily a biblical religion, maintaining every particular law crafted for a particular context, but an oral tradition that evolves while maintaining the Torah's core values and legal principles. The Talmudic rabbis actually compare the Torah to the lips of a seductive woman. This can be found in Midrash Tanhuma Truma 8. Our loyalty is to the rabbinic interpretive tradition, and we shouldn't be tempted to believe that the esoteric Bible is the sole Jewish authority. The Bible is the revealed wisdom that began our tradition and others, other monotheistic traditions like Christianity and Islam, but it also gave license and authority for Indeed, it obligates us to engage in continued interpretation. Rav Cook suggests that Jewish law not only evolves, but also expands. He writes in Igrot Haraya, we should not immediately feel obliged to refute any idea that comes to contradict something in the Torah, but rather we should build the palace of Torah above it. In so doing, we reach a more exalted level and the ideas are clarified. And therefore, when we are not pressured by anything, we can confidently also fight on the Torah's behalf. So Rev. Cook further defined the idea of progress, suggesting an evolution marked by constant progress provides solid grounds for optimism. The Kutzker Rebbe explains that we are to live both in this world and outside of it. Embracing both revelation and reason enables us to actualize our Torah values to the fullest. While the Torah comes from heaven, it is not in the heavens. Its continued interpretation, application, and relevance are under human control. The Torah's applications continue to evolve while the core truths and values are preserved. The revelation did not bind us to a destiny of stagnancy, but gave us freedom. Immanuel Kant challenged this point, arguing that if divine revelation was a reality, It would be calamitous for man's created freedom, since one loses free will and the capacity for reason when encountering divine truth. Emmanuel Levinas explains why revelation, thus limiting human freedom, but maximizing human responsibility needed to be so. He wrote, the the teaching which the Torah is, cannot come to the human being as a result of a choice that which must be received in order to make freedom of choice possible cannot have been chosen unless after the fact. Our freedom needed to be suspended during the Sinaitic revelation in order that we could be free. Another barrier to embracing Jewish tradition has been the idea that one should live by reason rather than by faith, right? I'm a person of reason. I live by science, I live by philosophy. Why would I embrace anything that doesn't fit with my reason? However, according to the dominant Jewish perspective, one need not take a leap into the irrational when embracing the truth of the Torah. Countless Jewish authorities and commentators, such as the Rambam, Raubag, Sadia Gaon, Ibn Tibon, the Abravanel, have suggested that reason and revelation are indeed compatible. Perhaps the question of who wrote the Torah is not really the central Jewish question after all. Now, by Abraham, Joshua Heschel once suggested that if we were to find historical proof that the Ten Commandments were indeed revealed from God, few to none would live any differently. For we do not make our daily life decisions based upon historical evidence. Further, we are aware that historical positions of this nature can never be proven. The existence of God and the origin of the Bible are at best untestable hypotheses, right? How many people would say, oh, the Torah wasn't from God, great, I can steal and murder. How many people would say, oh, I was only not committing adultery because I believe the Torah was from God. Now that I don't believe it anymore, I'm out, right? How many would say living a life full of jealousy and lying was actually something that was was only a leap of faith, right? In fact, these moral truths, um, these moral truths were not some leap of faith, but were compatible with reason. So while intriguing, this question is not so problematic. History, History is ephemeral, while meaning is eternal. What matters most in the Jewish tradition much more than historical truth is the power of values. In assessing the value of historical context and the interpretation of text and law, Some Jews are overly dismissive, but others embrace it to the exclusion of all meaning of Jewish core values. Reading ancient texts solely with a historical or scientific lens blocks one from embracing deep moral and scientific truths, excuse me, deep moral and spiritual truths. Evaluating the literal veracity of the creation story is much less relevant than the ethical dimensions of this phenomenal narrative. The Midrash Sifra, as understood by the contemporary Jewish theologian, Rabbi David Hartman, explains beautifully that it is a principle of faith in the Jewish tradition that God liberated the Jews in an exodus from Egypt, mitziyat mitzrayim. However, the sages go on to explain that the obligation is not primarily a requirement of belief, but of action. The one who truly believes in the miraculous exodus is honest in weights and measures. The one who acts ethically in business has embraced the deepest meaning of this theological value. The truth is not a historical fact, merely to be noted, but is rather a value that must transform our character. Let me unpack how radical this idea is, even though it's very simple. Someone might say, what does it mean to believe in God? I shake in fervency and prayer that I know God exists. What does it mean to believe the Jews left Egypt? That when I say Shema Yisrael, I truly believe in historical fact. But what Hartman is saying, based on the Sifra here, is that what it means to believe these is not actually about what happens in one's mind. It's about one's action. If I believe in God, then I act honestly in my workplace, whether someone is watching me or not. What it means to believe that Jews came out of Egypt and that there's a lo- there is a world of justice is not that I sit there shaking in the belief, but that I act justly with how I use my time, with how I use my money, right? Believing in that model of justice based upon that narrative. It is a belief of, of action, right? That the mitzvot are about action, not about the mind. So friends, I personally believe that God did indeed reveal the Torah to our people. My soul is bound up with Torah in a way that perhaps make re- makes revelation retroactively true. This is an existential, but not an epistemological claim. The Torah is the most powerful and persuasive work I've ever read. And I feel spiritually elevated from an encounter with Torah unlike that which I experience with anything else. I love secular poetry. I love the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, but my soul is not bound up with it in the same way. I feel the values of this tradition to be the most ethically poignant and compelling. I'm not alone. All of Western religion, whose adherents make up about half of the world's population, has been built upon the belief in this powerful revelatory experience, but over half of human people. Yet the ultimate question for me is not whether one believes in the Torah, but whether one lives in it, one, whether one lives it. Further, the fact that we cannot find historical proof that the Torah is from God is not a reason to opt out by living by Jewish law and values. Historical ambiguity is no excuse for disengagement. A philosophical like agnostic who questions whether human reason can understand anything beyond worldly experience and thus claims that the revelation is merely a myth that cannot be taken seriously, risks becoming spiritually numb if tradition is therefore dismissed. It is not a leap of faith that is needed in embracing of that which one understands to may or may not be true. Rather, one must suspend or look beyond disbelief in order to find self-actualization, one might suggest. Embracing revelation may actually represent what is constitutive of our humanity, what makes us uniquely human, since the ability to grasp something phenomenal beyond our own limited experience is what demonstrates that humans have intelligence. One might ask pragmatic questions. Does living in a community that embraces Jewish revelation enhance my moral responsibility? Does living by Jewish law and values make me a better person? Do I feel closer to the divine when I learn Torah, when I pray and fulfill traditional Jewish requirements? Theology that works in a sense is true, whether or not it's historically accurate. And such accuracy is elusive in any event. If one finds that through years of learning and performing mitzvot, their moral, spiritual, and intellectual commitments and capabilities grow. This cannot be dismissed as tangential to the goal of religion. True religion must be more concerned with the doable good than with the unknowable true. Judaism is a performative theology. We understand it by doing it. This is why the Israelites say, we will do and then we will understand when receiving the Torah. Ritual is spiritual exercise that can facilitate the expansion of one's moral imagination. Torah is like love. You cannot understand it unless you have fully felt it and lived it. The Pentateuch written sometime before the second millennium before Common Era, whether or not it existed in some phenomenologically inaccessible state earlier than that, is a remarkable set of moral and legal teachings, poetry and song, love and tragedy, and dreams of a better world. Today, its message is unfortunately blurred in this age of skepticism, where no commitment seems to be held too tightly, and everything is contingent on what the latest historical evidence seems to indicate. However, if we imagine that God loves us, that a heaven awaits us, that a time of universal peace and justice will come, we can embrace the wisdom of our heritage, perhaps even more deeply. If we can allow our encounter with the divine and tradition to be existential rather than purely historical, we can connect in deep and meaningful ways, even without having all of our concerns resolved. So friends, to move to a conclusion here, although this can't be concluded, when some of the tales about the Chafetz Chaim were challenged, One leader responded, I don't know if these righteous stories about him are true or not, but they don't tell stories like that about you and me. In like terms, we may or may not be able to prove the historical accounts told in the Bible, but there's nothing that compares to it in the modern world or even in antiquity. As Mark Twain said, if the Ten Commandments were not written by Moses, then they were written by another fellow of the same name. (laughs) <laughs> the wisdom and language of the Bible is unparalleled in, the, in its power to inspire idealism and social change. No one claims that Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was naive or unintelligent to root his social activism in the language of the, of the Torah, right? He didn't, and it's very interesting, by the way, Martin Luther King didn't root his, um, his activism in the New Testament or in the language of Jesus. Right? he chose to do it in what Christians call the Old Testament, in what we call the Torah. Martin Luther King primarily rooted his, his activism in the, in the narrative of Moshe, just like in many ways um, Reverend William Barber, who's who's picking up the you know the, picked up the torch from MLK, leading the Poor People's Campaign, has in many ways rooted his universalist activism also in, in a similar model. This revealed tradition has the power to inspire us again and again to transform the world, to make a sanctuary where God can dwell. Perhaps questions such as, is the Torah divine, and are the critics right, are the wrong questions to ask. Perhaps we can and should live with the paradox and the humility of uncertainty. Rather than over-philosophizing as to who wrote the Torah, we can spend our time building our character through the deep wisdom it offers, enabling us to heal the world. Okay, friends. We only scratched the surface, but I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. Let's hear your questions and thoughts on uh, on this great debate.
2: Steve, your hand's
3: up. Go ahead. Oh, can you hear me? Yes, Steve, we hear you. Uh, To me, I mean, there's so much to talk about here. Um, To me, the question is not is the Torah divine, but is God divine? Mm. And the only reason I say that is the proverbial why do bad things happen to good people? Why were the Jews. Bound to slavery in Egypt when God could have prevented that at the very beginning. And possibly I'm getting onto my non-belief in a personal God, but no less admiration for Torah. I love it. It brings back so many great memories of my childhood, especially Shabbos's and and arguments my dad and uncles used to have about Torah. And there there was something about the stories and the unknowing of the answers and the constant questions that are so much more important to me than knowing explicitly what each word means. I don't believe in a personal God, but that makes me not attentive to the dictates of Torah. Okay,
1: amazing, Steve. Thank you so much for sharing that. There's a lot to say there. And you're in, you're in decent company around, um, around the non-personal God. Without a doubt, the the, the dominant thrust of Jewish um, theologians, uh, both of the rational and the Kabbalistic sense, has been a belief in a personal God. However, um, people like the Rambam, many, um, many scholars have suggested, uh, believed in an impersonal God. Um, a God who is uh, engaged in the active intellect, kind of an Aristotelian God, if you will. Um, now th- that means the Rambam has to do a lot of work to understand, and explain why do we still pray, why do we still um, ask things of God if there's a non-personal God. But you are in good company um, with with uh, Jews in our tradition who have um, who have believed in that non-personal type, both as a philosophical problem because a personal God. Um, in, in many ways, is anthropomorphic. This is part of Maimonides' problem there. Um, once God is personal, that, that God is in some way uh, in this world in ways that um, are too human like, but also because of the issue you raised as well around theodicy. Your question of is God divine is such, a, is such a fascinating way to frame the question. Because I think one way to say it is no, God is not divine. God is a human construct, God is a human word that we have created to describe something far beyond whatever divinity is or potentially could be. And so we have a human construct that we call God to try to understand something far beyond our understanding. And that's where the Kabbalists understand as well. They call it the Ain self the infinite, that there's some infinite realm that is far beyond our finite comprehension. And so God is not divine, as, as you framed it so interesting. God is the human construct which means there is some divinity out there beyond our comprehension. We we comprehend some very limited and false sense of what that is. And so there we could say, actually rejecting God is actually um, a pathway towards belief. Atheism is required for belief. You have to reject God in order to get to divinity. Because if you believe in some some superficial notion of God, then actually, you've rejected the the, the the infinite, incomprehensible dimension of divinity, right? And so there, Rav Cook himself says that that an atheist is closer to God than someone who believes in a false God, some limited notion of God, right? The humility that emerges with an encounter or something way beyond us, and that's why Steve says that the human words themselves are so limited. Human words are human, are, are within the human realm. And the divine word is so far beyond that. Um, And then you get into this last point there, Steve, around slavery and theodicy, which is, I think, precisely what the Torah is trying to get us to do, to move from divine reliance, um, even though that's there, towards human responsibility. And uh, we see that from the Exodus story and beyond. The Torah is moving us from divine reliance in the earlier stages towards a realm of human responsibility. So Steve, thank you for that, that. those poignant points there. I see Eddie came on video. I think he wants to maybe jump in.
2: No. Okay, Eddie's just on video now. Yeah, okay, Lauren,
1: we're up to you.
4: Hi, um, you didn't go much into biblical criticism. The little that I know is from having studied enough with, with a group of people who are mostly into biblical criticism as, as opposed to uh, rabbinic interpretation. And, and I find that it's it's like missing the whole point. It's um, it's almost irrelevant. I mean, yeah, I believe the Torah comes from Sinai, but if, if you take any divine inspiration from it, and, and you don't even look, I mean, I don't think that word for word, the pshat, it's even understandable in many cases. You need rabbinical interpretation. It grows over years. Sometimes I hear a kiddosh that like knocks my socks off. It's like, how did that person ever think it? It's wonderful. And it, it and if all you're concentrating on is if it's X or P or whoever who wrote it, you can missing the whole point of Torah. Um, anyways, yeah. great, great point. You
1: know, you. You know, um, it, um, that's a great point, Lauren. And I think that um, that those who want to engage in the criticism dimension, uh, primarily, and they say, "Oh, let's look at the artifacts we have found. Let's look at the historical context of the language as it's being used. Um, let's look at the at the moral problems that are involved there um, and the historical context those problems would emerge in." Um, I think. Um, on the one hand, there's something historically interesting about that, and and certainly relevant to the search for truth. On the other hand, I think you're right as a as Jews or as humans seeking meaning, seeking God, seeking moral life, to primarily engage with the text in a scientific or historical manner. I think you're right; misses the point. Um, it misses the point of what we're what we're trying to do in this world and what we're seeking. Um, and so there's a lot to be said about that. Here's here's another case. I've never really given this analogy. Tell me if this works. It'd be like meeting a stranger and they were like, tell us about your parents' marriage. Right? And they're like, oh, well, here's 12 pictures I have over the course of their 50-year marriage. Right? And these 12 pictures will tell the story of the marriage. And they say, well, you know, these pictures actually... Leave me to construct a very different picture. You say, "No, actually, I'm their child or I'm their sibling. I can tell you a fuller story here, right? That just finding a few limited artifacts um, would be a very limited way to understand a human story, um, you know. And so you, there's 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 a much broader perspective of truth as you get closer and more intimate uh, to it. Uh, it would be you know, or someone who has never prayed who read a book about prayer. Um, oh, like what are people doing when they pray, you know? Like a neuroscience book, like what's happening in the brain when someone prays as opposed to actually praying? Or, or someone who's never had a child reading a book about what it's, what it's like to be a parent um, as opposed to someone parenting. It's a very different phenomenon, right? And so I think you're right. And so, and I think this is also true for someone here who com- rejects the Torres divine and for someone who totally believes it i think in either model engaging with the torah beyond the historical scientific questions is powerful you know it would almost be like reading a shakespeare reading shakespeare and being like no i want to know what ha- what shakespeare ate for breakfast that morning he wrote that like if i don't know if he had a good or bad breakfast i don't really know what his poetry is about or i need to know exactly what what was happening in his city On that day, he wrote that because everything he says must be bound by the historical context, right? There's no realm of ideas that transcends the context. And I think part of the belief in the power of Torah is to say, yes, Torah emerges like everything does within historical context, and some ideas transcend context. They're that powerful. So thank you, Lauren. Eric, I see your hand
2: is up.
5: Thank you. The, um, to, to 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 compliment someone else said earlier, there was so much to to un to pick apart the you know that that this layer of onion as a conversation. It's hard to to start, but there was one thing that I have to say. Focus on that. Um, it's kind of a little complex. There was a saying that I remember learning about that when we are in the womb. Well, we are before we are born. That we are in the womb. That there is this. Old traditional idea that that the entire Torah is recited to us like an angel comes and and the Torah's is entire is recited to us in the womb, and when we are born, then you know the idea is that we our goal you know is to try to 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 learn the Torah in life uh, you know in our life. So I guess when you're bringing up this concept of divine versus human, it makes me wonder. Well, in again, the poll says there seems to be a little bit mixed, is where does this idea of, if this was even, I mean, I, I don't even believe it's like completely true, but the idea of that brings about like, how much of this is divine? Is it really the whole Torah? Is it the principles and the core versus are human? Is the human perspective of the Torah also, um, kind of with the saying also part of that too? Is it strictly divine? or is it strictly, or is it human, or is it both? When, when one thinks of that, that the idea of in the womb.
1: Great, so um, just so I understand your great question there, um, Eric, your question about, is it, is it divine, is it human, is it, as a binary, or is it both? Remind me how that connects to the idea of the fetus, of the fetus who, who knows Torah? Oh, there was
5: no, there was just an old saying about that, yeah. it, that, yeah. that in the nine months, that the, the Torah, learning the Torah as the womb, like the, the, like, there's this, this is an idea that the, the, you know, an angel comes or some um, entity like comes and like teaches the Torah or recites the Torah and the in the womb, it's like, it's all, and then when we're born, all of it goes away. It's just, it's it's that, that barrier between life as a baby, between that and the, as the fetus in the womb.
1: Okay, that's awesome. So folks who aren't familiar with that Talmudic passage, the suggestion there is that all the Torah is learned in the womb, and then this little soft spot under our nose here gets tapped right as the baby emerges from, um, uh, from, the, from, from his or her mother, and in that tap, the baby loses all of the awareness of Torah. And in that sense, when one learns Torah, they're not learning it for the first time, they're remembering from the preconscious state. They're remembering from the Torah of the womb, in a sense. Um, and that womb is kind of that divine, um, the the divine mother love, the divine mother love of the womb where one knows in the deepest way, which in some way, if you think about conversion, going into the mikvah, conversion is going back into the womb. It's returning back to being reborn in in the womb and re-emerging reborn at that moment, Um, because emerging from the womb is that place of birth, not only a physical birth, but of of spiritual of spiritual consciousness, and that's why forgetting is so powerful um, and, and important for remembering, um, and remembering differently. And your point there about about the um, the binary of what's divine and what's human is so powerful because, indeed, I think that on some level that merges that merges. Um, you know, just like when the when the, uh, a fetus emerges and and becomes. A, a human being at that moment of 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 birth, um, that that child um, now is at that is at that transition um, from being kind of immersed within the divine in the divine womb to now being outside of that womb. That's why the baby's crying. You know, that's why the baby is crying because the baby is being stripped from immer- immersed in divinity, and now the baby born is now for the first time, separated from oneness with God, right? There is the vacut, the the fetus is is clinging to the divine, and then the fetus is stripped of it. It's like the experience of Adam and Eve leaving Gan Eden. When Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden, they are leaving the enlightenment, the vacut, the oneness with God, and now they're kind of born as a child coming out of the womb. And there's a crying, suffering that emerges in that. So in a sense, I believe, and here I don't want to get too Freudian, um, but I believe we're always striving in our life to return to that womb. This has been my argument about, about, about sex that sex is striving to return to the womb, that when two people kind of are, their bodies are inside of each other, right? Whether they're straight or whether they're gay, that kind of being inside another human being is an attempt to return to the womb, being inside of a human being, right? In a divine sense. Um, And this is what I think um, sleep is like. Sleep is about turning off the mind in order to go to the pre-conscious state of the womb. This is what I think kind of spiritual wokenness is, is kind of living in the soul or living in the spirit is going back to the womb. Um, And that suffering, and here I don't wanna take an Eastern approach that says suffering is an illusion. I wanna take a Western approach that suffering is a pro- moral problem. Nonetheless, there is part of the spiritual dimension of the suffering as well. That suffering partially is our own is our own um, our own struggle, not purely about physical pain. Um, and our ability to grapple with that suffering is about returning to that divine womb. And that is our own spiritual work to do. And so I think in that sense, as Eric is kind of pointing to here, the merger of the divine and human kind of happens in our own space. And here, I think, in kind of a very Jewish intellectual way, that clinging to truth is a way of also reducing suffering. That when we live in truth, we we strip ourselves from lies. Living in lies leads to suffering. When we're deceiving ourselves, when we're deceiving our, our work, we're deceiving our partners, we're deceiving our family, we live in suffering because we're living in the lies. When we live in truth, to some degree, we are... We're we're removing those barriers of authenticity. And so too with revelation. What's from God? What's from humans? To some degree, when we go to the depth of the human being, we're also going to the depth of the divinity. And in that place, it becomes one. The two kind of merge. Um, uh, Regina, I see your hand is up over there. Hey.
2: um... Thanks for, for letting me join
4: today. Um, Thank you. So I, I think uh, the the topic is really interesting. And um, you know, the, the the debate about where the Torah actually comes from, I think ultimately, and like obviously this is just my opinion, ultimately, you know, the the idea that the Oran created everything is the fundamental aspect of of, of everything, right? And so if uh, if it was written by Moshe entirely, or whoever wrote it, wherever it came from, ultimately, it's from the Atoff. Like you know, a blade of grass, it doesn't exist independently. I didn't create it. No one created it. it was it was uh, divinely made. So I think in my personal opinion that uh, that's that's where everything comes from.
1: Great. So, great. So, so Regina is sharing here a a fundamental principle of of Jewish traditional faith, which is that everything was created. For the Greeks, the Greeks believed the world was eternal. The Greeks believed that God was eternal and creation was eternal. Um, And um, Jewish tradition came and said, God is eternal, but everything beyond God, so to speak, is created. Um, there was a creation story. And that's not explaining something eternal to create that it's it is explaining the blade of the, the blade of, of grass. And so the aim so the infinite contains the finite within it as well. Yeah, so that's a really that's a really profound, a really profound point. And what does it mean for there to be um, a one without the other, right? What does it mean to there to be a time? Before there was the other or any other, there was just oneness. That's kind of in the Kabbalistic sense, what we're ultimately seeking to return to. Now there's separation, differentiation, there's self and other, right? We can even ask the question of who is this from, God or humans, as if there's a separation. But we want to ultimately get to that era where there's only that oneness. Now, Scott writes over here, um, uh, so to confirm, is the Torah considered God-made or man-made? I hear various debaters or apologists use this point to try to undermine various religions. Is that a valid distinction? So I think Scott's point is really helpful here, which is to say that whether our conclusion is God made or human made or both, or they are one and the same, whatever our conclusions are there. I think that, th- that the mistake is to say That is the primary question to the validity of religion. I hear that all the time, that, oh, religion is all lies. Why is it lies? Because there were some old men in the desert who wrote something, and um, there's people trying to deceive us to make us think we're bound by this deception, that uh, this being a word of God, when really these old men in the desert. So all of this is a lie, right? With brackets, it it brackets, uh, it brackets the more important questions of ha- having to a- actually grapple with the content, right? To actually, once again, it'd be like saying, um, you know, as many do say, Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, or, or or not a lot of it. Other people wrote this stuff, and so I don't have to read it. I don't have to read the Shakespeare and see if it touches me or moves me at all because I don't know that Shakespeare actually wrote it all, right? Um, and so and so. Uh, um, uh, and, and so too, like it, it, it brackets the more pressing questions about what religion is primarily about—about about community, about love, about responsibility, about tradition—and um, one might more robustly engage with it if they believe it's from God. But one need not um, uh, bracket the potential of engaging robustly if they're not sure about that, or if they reject that. So Vicky writes over here: essential. Issue to consider, meaningful conversation, especially notions of emergence of spiritual and moral values from Torah, and the human responsibility to act and to actualize divine presence in this world." Thank you, uh, Vicki, that's really powerful. And I think um, Dr. Cabot is really kind of emphasizing that the primary point we're trying to get to here, which is that this is primarily, the debate should not be framed scientifically and historically, even though that's a value, but really helping us to think about human responsibility Um, and actualizing divine presence in the world. And how do we do that as Jews uniquely? How did Jews uniquely do that? So yeah, very powerful point. Okay, who did we not um, hear from yet? Matthew um, or
2: Yehuda or someone who has spoken?
1: Okay, friends, so to conclude here, I think that um, I wanna show respect to the academic work of biblical criticism, um, that these are serious scholars who um, have come to serious conclusions. And some of them, based on that, um, choose to not engage in Jewish practice or belief. And some actually choose to continue to, even as they are proponents of biblical criticism. They've made the two work together. And I also want to show respect to traditional believers who believe, who reject biblical criticism and believe that that the Torah is the word of God given at once. And I also want to show respect on, I see Eric has a hand up. We'll come back to him in a moment. Um, But it may have been unintentional, because his hand is down now. Um, And I also want to show, um, nope, it's back up. And I also want to show, show respect to those who um, who, who think the debate is not the primary debate, who really think the question of origins is one we simply cannot know and, um, and want to move to the question of experience, the question of, ex- of spiritual experience. And so there's a lot of ways to wrestle with this. But what I, my main point here is that this debate cannot be used to disengage, um, that our conclusions and, on any of these spectrums raises responsibility rather than decreases. Okay, Eric, last, uh, last comment or question goes to
2: you here. I'd like to get your thoughts on uh, where uh, which rabbis do you
5: see that are prominent in the Jewish community regardless of the denomination, but also I would say the academic community that you think that is leading, uh, that are leading like experts on like I guess a new, like whether it's divine versus human, but maybe looking at a, maybe there's a third school of thoughts uh, yeah. somewhere in the middle where, where, uh, Is there anyone living or recently passed that you that that you're aware of that's kind of an experts in this uh, trend of thought? or this
1: great, great so um, um I would recommend the Torah.com. the Torah.com is a resource that is um mostly very serious and very traditional jews who are also uh, committed to biblical criticism um, and to the academic study of torah and they are are the kind of the leading school right now that is kind of trying to work though make those two work together i think by and large to oversimplify i think by and large with big exceptions um the reform movement has rejected the notion of a divine Torah and binding divine law. The conservative movement has basically embraced the idea of divine inspiration, um, divinely inspired, but not literal, uh, the words of God. And the Orthodox movement, with a whole lot of different spectrums in there, have basically embraced an idea of every word is the word of God and, and is binding. Um, and then, uh, obviously, there's more to say about renewal and reconstructionists and everything in between. But I think in terms of what you're asking there, Eric, of those who are kind of really looking at that middle ground with a commitment to both, the Torah.com is an interesting resource. Um, JTS of the conservative camp was very into the biblical criticism, was kind of the, the, the leader of that uh, for decades. Um, and um, I actually, there's a book I really want to recommend. If you email me, I, I will remember its name because it's, it's, um, uh, it's, it's escaping me at the moment but a really phenomenal book that recently came out, a few by Rabbi Nathan uh, Lopez Cardozo, but also uh, one by uh, Norman Solomon that I would recommend also, who has really rich resources that shows the diversity of thought over millennia on these issues. Friends, we have a great debate next week, debate number 15. I hope you'll continue to join us. The debate topic for number 15 is, is Judaism situated in the past or the future? Are we primarily a people of the past or the future? Hope you'll join us. Have a wonderful day.
2: Great to see you.